Welcome to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws, the podcast for all things poetry. I'm your host, Catherine Owen. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, Outlaws. I am here with the Saturday uh, Poetry Party episode, which will feature an interview with Donna Kane, who I will introduce shortly. And then in a couple of hours, I'm going to chat with her. So first of all, I want to do kind of a summation of some of the things that have come across my desk and my mind uh, and my blood and my guts and my psyche and my heart and all those essential, crucial, vital parts of my being during the week. Sounds very serious, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, so yeah, the poetry mishmash that happens every week, there's always something. There's usually a few things. I was just listening to the marvelous, my absolute favorite poetry podcast, which is the Poetry Magazine podcast from Poetry Magazine in Chicago. And uh, it always just has fantastic interviews that are so engaging and so textured. And there's not any emphasis on selling your book and all the marketing tips that a lot of podcasts seem to offer in relation to writing, which I find extremely dull, even though I know it's essential for some, uh, for most, but still not my bag. Uh, And I love this podcast because there's these wonderful interviews with not just somebody interviewing somebody else, but this conversation, which is what I hope for for my interviews too, that there's an engagement with the poet, with the other poet or poets. And so they're talking about things a little bit more spontaneously. They might have some scripted questions and poems they've been asked to read, but then there's just this just superb flow that can be very magical and lead to all kinds of epiphanies. I was just listening to uh, Nikki Finney talking about, uh, she was talking about dance and how she doesn't dance as much anymore and how dance is the most freeing thing you can do for your body. And I agree. And I also agree I don't dance enough anymore either. And she was also talking about her father's dementia and how he had forgotten to swallow. And she read this just incredibly moving poem about a cube of red jello quivering on her father's tongue and it being like a diver unable to take a leap down the esophagus, which I thought was utterly gorgeous. And she also was talking about, super important, following her strangeness. Uh, People had said to her that, you know, her book was odd or different, uh, weird. And she said, good. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to trust my strangeness. So uh, I hope you can hear my voice that I'm mostly better. I did cough quite a bit last night, but it's um, much less frequent, fortunately, and I can breathe uh, much more deeply. So that's a beautiful thing. So what kinds of things have I come upon this week? Uh, Well, let's see. Let me look at my... Let me look at my files that I printed out and copied and pasted and cut and took photographs of because I wanted to remember them. So the first one is W.H. Auden's Six Functions of Literary Criticism. I came across this. Somebody had reposted it on Facebook and 
course, I read these six functions years ago, and I was thinking about how there continues to be this stigma, as I've said many times, around reviewing and writing criticism of any depth and uh, intensity and um, really voicing the complexities of creating art in this world. It is not just about bumping the book and gushing about it. Uh, so he says that, what's the function of a critic? The following services should be provided. Number one, introduce me to authors or works of which I was hitherto unaware. So often when you're critiquing or reviewing, you find these echoes or resonances of other authors in the particular writer's work, which is as it should be because we're all a product or a source of all our resources and our materials and our muses. Then he says, two, convince me I have undervalued an author or work because I have not read them carefully enough. This happens all the time too. Uh, everybody faces that moment where you, you know, you open a book and you read a couple pages and then you think, nope, not, not reading further. And when you're being a critic and you're reviewing, you're compelled to read further. And oftentimes you find that you were too hasty and you did undervalue the work. Uh, so three, show me relations between works of different ages and cultures which I could never have seen for myself because I do not know enough and never shall. That is utterly true. Nobody ever knows enough, but a, a really good critic or reviewer can make connections, uh, make those mysterious correspondences, uh, show how something that was written now uh, resonates with a work from the ancient past. Uh, four, give a reading of a work which increases my understanding of it. Yes. Uh, we should all be feeling allowed uh, and even applauded in giving our own deep reading of a work based on all our experience and our intelligence and our education and our own perspective. <clears throat> and even if you disagree with it, there could still be some value in it. Number five, throw light upon the process of artistic making. Yes, what is the value of it? What is the intent what is the way in which the author themselves enters and addresses their subject matter and their form? And then he says, six, throw light upon the relation of art to life, to science, economics, ethics, religion, etc. Okay, that's really challenging. But yes, art connects to every other field of existence. It's not just uh, sitting in its isolated little uh, cell, uh, you know, self-referentially. So uh, that's also an important feature of the critic. Show how this art of this uh, work of art is valuable in context, a larger, more immense, and um, sensitive context. Okay, so that's Auden. Uh, something else I came across on Facebook, which I've come across before, but I thought I would cut it out this time and think a little bit more about it. Um, it's about AI, which I call the plagiarism machine because there's no intelligence behind it. The allure of AI or the plagiarism machine entices those people who fetishize ideas but dismiss the work. They're the people who tell writers, I'll give you the idea, then you write it and we'll split the profits. For them, the vision is everything and the work is just an annoying obstacle. But the work is everything. The work is how a thing happens, where it's made, where skill is put to work. It's a little bit repetitive, but there you go. AI, or the plagiarism machine and creativity, 
uh, is for the people who have no skill, no work, no effort, no ethic. They just want to push a button. And I would say not even just with creativity, but also with academic work. Uh, I have seen my business go basically down the tubes um, because a lot of students, they just want to have their work uh, created by somebody else. And, you know, I used to have lots of students ask me to write their work and I would never write their work. But, you know, I would work with them to edit their work. And now they have the plagiarism machine to write and or edit their work. So definitely had a major impact on me, whereas my ideal students, who are unfortunately few and far between, they want to work with me to really learn, to really engage with ideas and, and grow as a thinker. So this week I also saw um, a poem of mine appear from a long time ago on uh, addiction in uh, CV2. And one of the things I was noting was the bios because I find it quite fascinating as a genre. Uh, what do people say in their bios? What do they not say? And as we know, there's been an intense emphasis on identity politics in one's bio and sometimes okay makes absolute sense in relation to the work and other times it just seems superfluous or just utterly excessive uh one writer described themselves as white fat disabled queer and trans which just seems to be like a real laundry list of you know who you are and you know maybe all those things relate to your poems and maybe you just really want us to visualize you I'm not really sure, but I find it personally um, very distracting from the fact that you are representing yourself first and foremost as a writer in this context, and what you've done as a writer uh, should matter more and first than how you identify in terms of your race and gender and every other little thing, including uh, I saw a bio recently where they were saying they were a suicide survivor. And that was part of their, you know, core identity. And it just seems like you're relying on your trauma to draw readers to your work uh, when it should be the work itself that draws the readers. And I think, you know, we could all put those things in our bios, uh, you know, what we look like, uh, what we've been through and so forth. But that needs to be reflected in our work and it's the work that will stand, you know, not our descriptions of ourselves in our bios. So I find that, you know, somewhat amusing and somewhat disturbing and somewhat boring. And I just, I just want us to get back to, is this work strong? Is it not? Uh, why? Why not? Okay. And let's see. Uh, lately, I have been thinking about different ways of, you know, how artists make livings. And it's always been an intense struggle for me in a variety of ways. And I do all my bits and piecing, but it's, it's definitely getting more challenging. And lately I've been saying to those who listen to this podcast, why don't you just go to Patreon and, and pledge 25 cents an episode? Cause I'm doing, as you can hear, uh, four longer episodes currently for season 10, uh, experimenting with this format. And that's only a buck a month. And absolutely nobody's going to miss a buck a month. And if you don't want to support, that's cool too. But it's just, it's interesting to me how we've become conditioned to 
uh, and everybody falls into it, including myself. You know, I do support some podcasts and then some podcasts I listen to that I don't financially support at all. Um, some I give $5 to, some I give $10 to, some I pay per episode. Uh, there's many different ways to approach it, one-time donations, etc. But there's this real hurdle, mental hurdle now, I think, where we just get so much for free, artistically speaking, and then there's the pressure and strain on the other side of, man, groceries are more expensive, man, rent is going up, everything is more pricey, uh, absurdly so, than it was before the pandemic. So there's that delight in, oh, well, I can still, you know, uh, get these books out of the book box or, you know, listen to a podcast or some music for free, which is terrific on one level. But on another level, of course, there are artists actually spending time and energy and their life force making these things that you enjoy and they can't live on air. So I just find it a real fascinating and um you know, kind of sad uh, conflict that goes on in all of our psyches now. And so the past couple of weeks, I've been thinking towards the tour I'm going on in uh, May, most of May, uh, starting with BC and then Alberta and then Ontario. And I've been posting old performance photos from my past tours. And this has just been an interesting process for me going down that little memory lane uh, and realizing how much I did back then on those tours and how much energy and time and money it, uh, it, it required. And then often how I would come back home and there, there would be nothing left or it would be completely disturbed and disrupted. And, uh, I, you know, I think, well, I don't, I don't want that to happen on this tour. I don't think it will. I think I'll come back and I'll, I'll still have my home. And I, you know, I wonder how much more tired I'm going to be or how many more resources I'm going to have to draw upon and so forth. And it, yeah, it's definitely going to be different. So just trying to imagine what that's like uh, and also knowing that I'm going to just have to enter the mystery. So the final thing I'm going to say before I do my Donna Kane introduction is that Brian Brett died this week, uh, born 1950, and so he was 73, and I met him a bunch of times. I can't say that I was close to him at all. Um, I was much closer to Patrick Lane originally, one of his closest friends, and later on for a much longer time, Joe Rosenblatt, another one of his friends. But I am going to do an homage to him next Saturday, and it's going to be an accumulation of bits and pieces of memoirs from others and his bio and his poems and a little bit of excerpt from his prose and so forth, as he was truly a force to be reckoned with. So today for our random interview, and it's the first interview I've done in a long time on Zoom, so I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, Donna's in Halifax, so yeah, three hours ahead. And so Donna Kane, uh, she's a recipient of the BC Medal of Good Citizenship. I like that she leads off her bio with that. That's a wonderful thing to be the recipient of. Donna Kane's poems, short fiction, reviews, and essays have been published widely. She's also a visual artist. 
She started as a visual artist. We might talk about that too. She is the author of the nonfiction book Summer of the Horse and four books of poetry, including The Marvelous Orrery, a finalist for the 2020 Governor General's Literary Award. Her most recent book out soon is Asterisms, Spring 2024 from Harbor Press. She divides her time between Roll-Up, BC, and Treaty 8 Territory in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and traditional lands of the Mi'kmaq people. And so Donna Kane and I first met in 1995 in Kamloops. I can't believe it was that long ago, 29 years ago, at the now defunct BC Festival of the Arts. So she says here, at the time I was practicing visual art, and when I submitted to images and objects the visual arts component of the festival, I also submitted mostly on a whim to the literary portion as well. I was only just beginning to think about writing poetry in a serious way, she says. While older than Catherine, I was far less skilled at writing, and I remember being a bit intimidated by this fierce and beyond her years, it seemed to me, accomplished writer. Uh, Yes, I was very young. (laughs) I was very young and very obsessed. I've followed Catherine's career ever since, she says, and although Catherine is still young, I put in parentheses, ahem, she is, in my opinion, already a legend in Canada's literary community for her work, her reviewing, and many other contributions. Thank you so much, Donna. Uh, Yeah, that was a very memorable time. Uh, You know, I was right at the beginning of things and I was very excited about going to Kamloops and and working with Gregory Schofield and my poem being picked. And we're actually going to read our poems that were selected for the BC Festival of the Arts in 95 that came out later on in an anthology called Chasing Haley's Comet, which features fiction, poetry, and memoirs from Laughing Willow Books. So even if Donna is a little bit hesitant about reading her poem from way back then, as am I, but you know, I'm putting it in the context of the era, uh, we're going to do that. So uh, yeah, I have not actually um, met Donna since, uh, apart from through social media, but I did review Ori in 2020 on my Mirror Reviews blog, and I wrote... Here's a couple of excerpts. Cain as a modern metaphysical poet, a fusion of a paganized Dunn and a slighter Isley, that's Lauren Isley, her researched obsession with the space probe serving up unique conceits that attach her even more intimately to Earth and its delicate, tenuous, intense processes. I like tongue twisters, don't I? She has a sharp feel for the line break, the stanza sensibilities, and the singing hinge of internal rhymes. The honed lyrics and orrery feel mostly like genuine, real human movements of awe and listening in the face of space and death and biology and time. And this, as a pursuit, constitutes the necessary core of poetry. Okay, so I'm going to finish this introduction Uh, which is going to be concluded a couple of hours before I actually interview Donna uh, in her own introduction of her new book, which she's going to maybe read a couple of poems from, uh, one of which I've got a few questions on. If you remember my original format of my earlier in-person and Zoom interviews, and that will be followed by my two standard questions that I ask every Canadian poet. I like that format. It worked well. So 
her, she says her book, Asterisms. All right. She says, having spent most of my life in rural northern BC, lucky her, where other than human life vastly outnumbers human life, Asterisms continues to have a focus on the natural world. And more recently, the night sky, another feature of where I live. Beautiful. I had a lot of fun writing asterisms. I played around with four more than with previous work. And while many of the poems are grief-stricken by the impacts of climate change and the deleterious outcomes of continuing to distinguish between humans and other animals as if we weren't the same organism, I have tried in several poems to employ a wry or darkly humorous tone as a way of poking fun at human frailties. I'm hoping it works. And it does. All right, Donna Kane, I'll chat with you soon. Welcome to Ms. Lyrics Poetry Outlaws. I'm here with Donna Kane. And Donna, you are currently in Halifax. I am. Yeah, I have a little tiny house here that I spend my fall winters because my daughter's family lives here. So it gives me a chance to know my grandkids. And it's nice to be in the city for a while. That's great. So then you go back to Rolla? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, BC? Yeah. So how long have you been in Rolla? And then how long have you had the little house in, in Halifax? Well, I've lived in Northeast BC my entire life so far. That's where I was born and, and uh, grew up. And uh, I only bought this little house in Halifax five years ago. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I love cities, uh, but yes. I'm not, you know, I've never really lived long term in one. So, right. yeah, for me, it's a bit of a treat. I mean, I love, I can't wait to get back to Rolla and the natural world. But, yeah, it's a, it's a nice change. So you can walk to everything around your house, or are you like right in the middle of a little community? Yeah, I'm in the, what they call the North End. Oh yeah. So I can, I can walk anywhere. Walk, I mean, I walk downtown today to the Bookmark and lots of little restaurants. And yeah, I, I don't have a vehicle. I just walk. Oh anywhere. yeah. Neither do I. Neither do I. Yeah. So do you do you get together with Sue Goyette or Brian Bartlett or any of the other poets that um, live there? Yeah. I've, I've had coffee with Sue. In fact, I have some of her little ceramics around my doors. Like, she was making ceramics. I yep. know she still does your little door plaques. They're so cute. Nice. And so, um, and I see Brian Bartlett and Laurie Nielsen Glenn. Oh, yeah. And Sue McLeod. Nice. Yeah. I know I love to come back and read in Halifax, but it's it's just so difficult to get the funding to get out there. You know, ways. and you might only read to three or four people. You just never know. So, <laughs> so I've already done the introduction where uh, you talked about how we met. And I said in the introduction that we were going to delve into Chasing Hilly's Comet and each read our poems that we had written and submitted to this contest and had accepted and then got published afterwards. And we were just talking a little bit about who else was there. And we were both mentored at the time by Gregory Schofield. Right, for those four days. And then I roomed with Mavis Jones. Who did you room with? I don't know if I, you know, I I don't actually remember, but I I think I roomed with someone from the visual arts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's where I met Joni Miller. And who else was in there? Oh, Catherine McNeil. I'm still in touch with her. Shannon Stewart. Um... Hmm, lots of people seem to have disappeared since then, but uh, definitely uh, Belaine Eckerson. So he was the one who won the contest. <laughs> so, 
Glass floor. The a glass floor, but actually the poem that won was the one where the giraffes were going together with their necks and they were creating a heart as they oh, kissed. Okay. And I thought at the time, I thought, oh, this is so sentimental. Oh, no. How, how could he win? And, and, and of course, we became friends since. But, you know, it was just one of those early days where you're just on tender hooks all the time in a way, you know, who's, who's listening to you? Is anybody reading you? Does anybody care? Uh, because you're so young and everything's so fresh. So why don't you read your, uh, amazing piece? Okay. Well, mine is much more sentimental than Philly's. I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, like I actually came into that program. I, I probably was the oldest person there at the time. I was 34 and I had been writing as a kid. But yeah. There'd been a period in between where I just didn't think about doing it seriously and then um yeah so I was kind of a, a late bloomer in in that way so in that group I, I think I probably was no you were not the oldest Mavis Jones who I roomed with was oh, probably 65 so, okay. so. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah okay I'm yeah. just gonna read the poem yeah as, as difficult as that is okay <laughs> a language apart you hold me the way a dark pond holds a moon's reflection, as if the light is patterned on stone. On good nights, I lift small shadows from your edges, touch like braille the passing ripples from the tide that draws you past me. It's clear, you'll never drown me. Your language a dance that slips beneath to where the sun's heat gathers, moving like silt through secret streams and undertoes <laughs> to bond. <laughs> you said you didn't like the edgeless as dreams. <laughs> you said you didn't like the last line or the last few words. I was like, oh, I understand. But again, it was twenty nine years ago. It was, yeah. In fact, I think it might have been more than. Well, that. more of course because well, we wrote them prior. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. but it's it's very Basho esque. You know, it's got that feel to it. And, and you can, even though it's romanticized and there's cliches, you can still feel some touchstones from your work now. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of my, I mean, this one is, is very sentimental in my opinion. And I always, I feel like my writing is mostly quite restrained. Like I try not to get too sentimental. So uh, that maybe cured me. I don't know. <laughs> But we all had a poem that we wrote about the moon at the beginning. Yes. And, of course, we have many poems about the moon since, but there was this particular sentimentalized version of the moon poem that, yeah. you know, I used to be obsessed with writing moon poems. But this piece, Compulsions, it's in Chasing Healy's Comet, actually is based on a story that a young man told me about his obsessive-compulsive disorder and how it started. So you think it holds up. I do. Let's see. So you're 18 years old. <laughs> well, thereabouts. <laughs> yes. It's four stanzas of three lines each. Compulsions. You who as a child felt the balance of sidewalks, how in multiples of four your feet should touch equally until comfort, a weight of reason, was reached. You who set fires in the backyard behind your father's studio who lit eight small fires on the dried marsh grass, all the same size, until an equality of heat was reached. You, who spoke of this day as a cure, how when the eight formed one, 
you knew the sudden destruction a construct can take. You are not freed from compulsion. Your words continue inside me. Their sound a child's need, carefully placed. I can hear the resonance at any rate. Uh, You know, it doesn't completely humiliate me, so that's reassuring. I'm sure other pieces I wrote around that age would. So perhaps that was a few and far between entry that, you know. No, what I remember from you is that you're always very clear-headed. And Mm. there was no real, I mean, as I said to you before, you were were fierce at 18. (laughs) (laughs) I knew what I wanted. I had no time to waste even then. <laughs> okay, Donna, please read the poem that we chose, which is Artemis Program or my last moon poem, speaking of our first moon poems. Right. Yes. And it's funny because uh, I was like, yeah, they're both moon poems, but I can say that I don't think I've ever since then, well, at least my last two collections, I don't ever talk about the moon in that way like they're they're used in a much different way now as an object it seems more than yes more but anyway okay so this is artemis program or my last moon poem hey big round of cheese eject them from some ancient collision listen up we're headed your way and this time we're bringing pajamas if you're sick and tired of moon poems this is your lucky day (laughs) Once we've staked our claim on you, you'll be no different to those still here on earth than looking across a prairie so open we can see all the way to Alberta. We'll look up and mostly wonder who's on you, who's brushing their teeth, setting their clocks, bickering over unwashed cups. You'll cease to be our expansive gaze, imagination's room of its own. I know we've weeded out wonder before. But this one takes a cake, or should I say, pizza pie. (laughs) I love it. It's just so jam-packed with sound and images. And I was thinking when when the line, who's brushing their teeth, I was thinking of Sylvia Plath saying, you can't put a toothbrush in a poem. (laughs) (laughs) What happens to the romanticism? Uh, so I have a couple of uh, questions. First of all, a more general one, because you sent me a couple of other pieces from the book. And so the pieces you show me from your new collection, Asterisms, all have, I don't know if that's the case with most of the pieces, but the four that I've seen have this sonity feel to them. Uh, how does this form contribute to your content, which is always one engaged with the energies of other creatures and entities? This book... Um you know, was was fun for me to write, which I, you know, can't say was the case for, for some of my other work. Mm. But um, and in part, um, the the name of the manuscript is Asterisms, which is a, a pattern that humans see in the sky. So the Big Dipper is an asterism; mm. it's a pattern of stars. And so um, I did employ more pattern in mm. these poems, that and I, I in the past didn't really write sonnets or. Mm villanelles or those sorts of things as much but I, I do find yeah just for whatever reasons like the sonnet uh form even though I'm not being like completely accurate mm-hmm. to the the form that that sort of resonance of a sonnet 
is in, yeah, a lot of them. It just kind of worked out that way. Mm. I was just thinking of your cover, which has, is it a close-up of a butterfly's wing with the yes, patterns? Yeah. Huh. yeah. It was pretty amazing. It looks like a, it looks like cloth. I mean, mm. yeah, nature's pretty oh, remarkable. Incredible. Yeah. Do you divide the book with different patternings or is it scattered throughout? Yeah, sorry, I interrupted. Um, it goes through the seasons is how I've ordered them. Yeah. Hmm. That's always a, you can't, you can't lose with that approach. I don't think, (laughs) you know, uh, I think it's a, it's a way that the mind wants to work because our minds are constantly, especially in most of Canada, flowing through those seasons and having to constantly readjust. So somehow that's a very satisfying return in like minutiae, right? In the book. Yeah. Yeah. I would say too, for me, like uh, ordering poems has always been kind of difficult. So as you say, it's kind of a, it's, it's a sure thing. Mm-hmm. So I tried that. And then when it was going through the editing process, it, you know, the editors felt it worked. So we didn't really fiddle much with it. Whereas mm. in the past, my other books, there's been much more moving around. Mm. Because you didn't have as much of the fixed yeah, kind no. of sections? Yeah, I don't have for the, uh, the whole thing as much as other people do. Like when they, some people, when mm. they look at their manuscript, they can, they just kind of know the, like you say, the rhythm and the flow that needs to work. Mm. But I've always struggled a bit with that. So mm. I've always kind of needed someone else to help me. Mm. So. Kind of like the macro vision of what's going yeah. on. Yeah, no, it is challenging always, I think. Uh, you know, I end up cutting massively and massively until I get the kind of macro vision, which is micro from the macro somehow, you know, yeah. but it takes a lot of vigorous viciousness sometimes to get to that place you know what was your process with with asterisms did you how what what period of time did you take to write the book and um you know I was struggling with with uh poetry or we had come out but I just I wasn't writing poems it was the pandemic Mm -hmm. still so I uh one January uh day I decided to sign up for George Murray's Walk the Line introduction to poetry mm. <laughs> let's go back to the beginning <laughs> you can't go wrong yeah it was yeah. the best thing for me because it was you know I, I got introduced to well form again so I'm sure that has something yeah, also to yeah. do with, with my exploration of form more because you know some of those were uh sort of lessons on write a sonnet about this and it's like oh I kind of like this form yes. but you know more than more than sort of the exercises given in the the classes it was just a camaraderie of you know finally mm. seeing uh other writers faces again and hearing what they were writing and having sort of a community where you could post your poem and someone could you know weigh in on it and yeah. it's just yeah it was lacking that yeah that so this was online path. across canada or was there writers from the states and all uh, over yeah, I think yeah the very first one there was one from the states and uh well, at least one, maybe two. Hmm. And then there was me from BC and there was some from the East Coast. They were, yeah, they came from all over Ontario. Yeah, hmm. it was a, a great mix. And hmm. a lot of the writers are, you know, they've been very successful in yeah. publishing since. So, yeah. How big was, was the group? Was it? Um, I think maybe, I'm trying to think, maybe the maximum was six. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah. so it wasn't real big. Hmm. Yeah. 
that's yeah, always the best. Great, so. Well, that's yeah, good to I know. Yeah, yeah. I met George touring in in Newfoundland, but I didn't know that he was offering those types of online courses. I know lots of people started doing that during the pandemic. Yes. And uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely a, a good idea to just go back to the nitty gritty basics and just refresh because exactly. we're never masters. Exactly. I mean, you're never going to reach a point, at least I'm never going to reach a point in my writing where it's like, oh, okay, now I know how to write a poem. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> from scratch it seems each time so yeah yeah I, I remember asking Patrick Lane why he didn't draw more or show his drawings and that and he just said it's too easy for me uh, I, I could yeah. just to, do it I could just slap dash you know knock something off and so I mean to me it was like what like I could draw stick people like oh you lucky man but for him it was just there's no challenge so why why bother right. So, yeah, it's really interesting. You need that. You need that constantly straining towards and something that's always ineffable, I think, you know, around yeah, the next corner. Yeah. yeah. So specifically this piece, the Artemis program or my last moon poem, addresses the de-romanticization of the moon. So long a topic for poets, a muse. Why can't it still be a source even if people are on it with toothbrushes? Does a muse have to be, and there's the word again, ineffable, to compel? You know, it's probably uh, the, the real physical uh, action of, of people wanting to live on the moon. And it's like, I don't know how this is going to work. It's so I mean, absurd. Can't get along here. Yeah. Uh, countries are already going up there for regolith or whatever. Yeah. And, and they're like, oh, well, we'll just sort it out once we're up there. <laughs> Well, I don't think that's going to work. So typically Honestly, humans. It, but, but, yeah, so I was like, I think like, no, oh, the moon needs to not be a war zone at some point. You know, oh. I don't want to look up oh. and there's, you know, things going awry with humans up there. I mean, just leave it alone. But, I mean, I understand a lot of other people don't feel the same as me. It's just so perplexing to me. I, you know, you, you've got so many issues on this planet. You've got so many problems. You've got so many concerns. And you're just going to ditch it i mean this is just the the ultimate and you know the uh serial monogamy <laughs> just like <laughs> just it's ditch that world. yeah 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 <laughs> yeah you just have the honeymoon period again somewhere else and then you know wreck that That's and then we're yeah. i mean i i i'm all for i mean i love science and i'm all for like understanding more our place in the universe i just don't think like extracting things from is necessary at this point but you know what do i know i'm not a scientist i'm not a, I'm not a capitalist. you're just you're just a poet donna <laughs> <laughs> no 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 we have every right we have every right to say how we feel based on what we know which is a lot that's very intuitive and the intuitive is correct also you know um yeah, it's just it's just so foolish to to not take care of what you've been given. This 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 planet has everything we require, and yet we're just willy nilly reckless. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just humans frustrate me. That's why there's poetry. <laughs> you could forget it's written by humans. <laughs> so 
so uh okay so let's leave the moon alone uh please uh so the, there's quite a bit of humor in this piece you know i was thinking about because i'm rereading Don mckay and i'm thinking about how much Don mckay will infuse and sometimes it irks me and sometimes i applaud it it just depends what it is but he'll infuse these serious nature poems or, or scientific poems with this giddiness or this goofiness or, you know, this, uh, this, this humanization of birds or what have you. So you've, you've got the imagined pajamas and the shift from the idiom of taking the cake to the pizza pie, the reference to, uh, Dean Martin's song, That's Amore. Uh, I see you have other pieces that draw on the funny or quirky. Is this a key tool throughout asterisms and why? How does this technique make people think more deeply about our impact on the environment? Right. I would say, um, I think I've always had a little bit of humor in my writing or maybe uh, just that kind of like, not really like cold heartedness, but like a, a wryness too, I, I suppose. And, mm-hmm. and this this book I feel is like, I, I had fun writing it. And there, so there is quite a bit of humor and, you know, sort of poking fun at ourselves, but also like using serious subjects. So like it probably... Like with Don Mackay, that was probably one of, uh, it was a way of like getting getting you to sort of explore the the, the subjects that he was really interested in, but, but capture you by some, by mm. some jokes or by mm. making it a little more lighthearted. And I would say this book is probably a little more lighthearted. And, you know, because I have so much fun and because there's a lot of that going on, it's like, well, I hope, I hope people don't think it's flippant. I guess that's kind of a little concern I have is that mm. a lot of the poems are, you know, making fun of myself. And Well, you have every right to make fun of yourself. So nobody can take offense okay. to that. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, flippant, that, that to me seems superficial, but I don't think that that's what's going on here. I mean, I your humor yeah. is a relationship to the world and I mean to me it's akin to you know when you do a reading and you warm up the audience with some kind of repartee at first and then you delve into the darker stuff right and this book seems like it's just going to be brilliant for performing you know yeah I hope so what what, what's your plans with that do you Uh, do you go on tours um, it comes out uh mid-march so I'll probably still be in Halifax. I'm mm-hmm. trying to come up with, because um, I don't know a lot of people in Halifax. So I'm trying to come up with some sort of unique way of, of launching the book here. But after here, I have a I have readings in Victoria and Vancouver. Oh, good. And then I a reading, like I, I'll organize my own launch up in Rolla. Right. So far, that I think that's that's about it. Yeah. Well, if you come to Edmonton, I yeah. I have a performance series on 94th Street Trevorites, and I have room for poets to stay. So, I would okay. I would I would love it if you came through and and I could organize an event. So, oh, if you get the chance, you. when are you when are you going to do your Vancouver and uh, Victoria launches? It's going to be in May. Um, oh, I me me too. May, May oh, really? Yeah, I'll be there May third for Victoria. Okay, so I come right after you because I'm the 10th. Oh, you're, yeah, you're the week after that. Are you doing yes. a workshop too or anything like that? No, just, yeah. just the reading. Oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah, I love your idea of uh, the gathering, uh, a workshop. Yeah, or just like discussion yeah. poems in 
a sort of intimate way and people buy your book and yeah, yeah. I'm just getting tired of the whole workshop model where the because yeah. it just feels that that pressure to produce and I, I just want people to play. I just, let's talk about poems around a theme and let's just play with things that are like drawing maps and listening to sounds and making, you know, maybe sense or things like that and making up some kind of construct of your own of a poem and what it means to you. And then just letting that influence whatever you do instead of it being this kind of, okay, you've got to leave with three new poems, yeah. which <laughs> it's not how I write, so... You know, well, when I took my uh, undergrad and MFA, well, the MFA wasn't bad, but like the the undergrad was like you, the creative mm. writing workshops where you had to go and you had to write a poem, and then you come back to class, and oh my god, I was just not good at it because I'm too I'm too shy. I'm well, too, well, you know, oh, and then the poem has <laughs> got to be graded, right? Just the yeah. the notion of grading a poem it just seems yeah. so reductive. Yeah. So and they are changing a lot of a lot of workshops now are looking at it differently where you know it's the the writer who gets who's who sort of keeps ownership of their poem and yes. asks what you know the mentor mm. what they would like to get more out of their poem but not right. necessarily have the the mentor tell them what they need to change a little bit more of an organic kind of process yeah. maybe so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, my big push with MFAs is is getting students to write reviews because I think there's just this whole sense of all these books emerging and where's the infrastructure? You know, I'm really interested in what sustains our publications. Do we go on tour? Where do they get distributed? Who reviews them? How do they get sold? How do they get received? How do they go to the states or other countries, you know, translated? You know, the way they used to in the 70s, from what I hear, there was all kinds of grants for translators, for instance. You know, that yeah. kind of thing. I think it's it's exciting. Not just having a book come out three months later. It's kind of it's forgotten. <laughs> you're done. Unless you win the prize, you're done, you know? Yeah, I, think, uh, I think COVID changed a lot of things, too, because now a lot of the promotion and marketing that publishers want you to do, a lot of it is on online like yeah. using social media because it is really effective and it's more cost effective as well but sure but yeah it's just something about going into even though like i am like quite i get so anxious when i read but yeah i'm always glad that i went and and did it and get to you know meet other writers and just yeah have a little you know, and i think that the nervousness the the anxiety is actually honoring the work I mean, I never, I'm always nervous before any kind of event. Always, always. It, but when I'm starting to perform, I don't have any nerves. To me, it's that anticipation of you're revealing your, your rhythms, your subject matter, your forms. You're, you're, you're making yourself vulnerable in various ways. And so there is going to be a little bit of, of, of nerves. And I think to me, the times I haven't had nerves, I felt over cocky and overconfident. And I don't think that's healthy. Right. So well, you do hear performers say that for sure. Like, mm -hmm. You know, some say they throw up, you know, backstage before they, you know, come out and perform. So yeah. And then they come out and kick ass. That's to, to me, those, those go together. So, you know, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> That. yeah exactly exactly doesn't mean you're not a performer because you feel nerves beforehand so you know or you shouldn't read in public and live because i think i think that's so important 
I'm 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 very old fashioned about. I don't actually like uh, Zoom recordings of my readings at all because I want people to be there and present, and I don't want people to see what I'm doing before I move on to the next town because oh, I usually have an element of surprise. That is true. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know about Planet Earth because that's my second reading, and of course they. They, they have it now on Zoom as well and streamed. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on, mm, should I say I don't want it? It seems a little bit snooty, but <laughs> I just feel like it's not my thing. So, yeah, well, I, like for me, because uh, I spend most of the time in, in Rolla, mm. you know, those Zoom readings that are streamed are like amazing for me because right. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't get to hear the, the writer otherwise. Yeah, so that's true. I think. It, does a huge service for those in rural areas, but I also get that that if you're if you're coming to the next town and someone has happened to yeah. to already watch you on Zoom, that yeah, well you you see that all the time with you know the big comedy festivals and that now they won't let anybody have their phones and they have to put them in these locked cases because nobody's going to come to your comedy show if you, they already know the punchlines. Right. So there's there's something about that. I think of it being this is your intimate exclusive event. And of course, most people have paid bucks to go to a comedy festival versus a poetry reading. So <laughs> we still come real cheap. <laughs> okay, so here's my standard questions. And you can approach these any way you like. First one is, tell me about how you got from there to here. So you were talking a little bit about visual arts and how you came to poetry through visual arts. So go yeah, for well, it. Yeah, um, I wrote when I was a kid. And uh, because I grew up on a farm, they had the Western producer. And there was an insert in there called the Young Cooperators Club. And you could send your poems in. And so I did that from about 13 all the way till when I graduated from high school. But as soon as I graduated, I... You know, I just thought, well, that's kind of an adolescent pursuit. Oh, right. You know, that's over. Yeah. And, and then I was getting, I was taking classes in visual art at the college, and I had to take a creative writing, or, well, I had to take an English component to mm. fulfill the, the degree. So I took creative writing, and I was like, oh, well, maybe this is what I want to do. And I didn't feel I had the ability to do both. Mm. As I, yeah, things were busy, my kids were little, and so I, I, I just kind of crossed over, and that was probably the year that I met you. I was I was still taking visual art, but mm. I was taking this creative writing course, and was thinking, well, I don't know, maybe I maybe I feel better writing, and yeah. that's how I made the transition. And it's yeah. very portable and very easy to do in small spans of time, exactly. right? Yeah. So what about what about from that point? How did you keep going with the poems? And I mean, it seems like you've really flowered recently in the past, you know, decade. Yeah, well, I went to I in those early years, like early two thousands. I was going to a lot of like I went to BAP to the writing studio and different uh, retreats in Saskatchewan. I built up sort of a community of of friends mm. and I. I had reading series at that time in Dawson Creek, and that went on for a lot of years. I had oh, yeah. so many writers come I there. I remember. Yeah, and so I didn't really have a lot of time to write. Yeah. And then, you know, my life changed quite a bit as well. And so yeah. there was a huge, there was like a 13-year period between 
you know, my first two books of poetry and then Ornery. Mm, that's what I now thought. I time and it seems like, you know, that those years have slowly built up. So like a few people, you know, know who I am now yes you know still pretty small potatoes yeah, yeah but we always are yeah. <laughs> there's the beauty in that too you know I always say that the arts I make they don't make any money so I'm absolutely free you know there has to be a pro right I can do whatever I want <laughs> nobody ever tells me you should write the same book next because that right. book sold a lot no yeah. so exactly. I can do whatever I want yeah <laughs> Uh, so what, so you were nominated for the GG for Orrery. How did you feel about that? How, what was your response? Well, you know, it was, it was the year of the pandemic and they usually announce these things in the, in the fall. Oh yeah. So I had no idea that, that, that it was even going to be announced. And I, I and because it was announced Eastern standard time, like I woke up in the morning and my phone was full of you know messages from friends from the east east side saying you know hey congratulations you're like why like, oh my god like yeah <laughs> it was um yeah it was, huh it was yeah pretty well it was surprising you know you just don't ever expect that so Mm. I'm just reading Gary Barwin's uh, imagining imagining and he, he's talking about when he was nominated for the Giller and just how mind-blowing weirdly mind-blowing it was because suddenly you know he does a lot of small press stuff and he's always mucked about with all kinds of things and suddenly he's got to put his you know black tie garb on and go <laughs> and be you know spoken about in these very glorious ways and it, how awkward and and also wonderful it is so yeah, yeah I haven't had that experience so <laughs> one change from having been nominated is that I get asked to write a lot of back cover blurbs. Oh gosh, like, resist. I feel like that's where I blossomed. Resist. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I, I absolutely refuse to write. I hate the word blurbs for one. Yeah. Um, but I wrote, I won't write them anymore because they've been so tarnished to me. It's very rare that you find a super genuine one. So I just say when publishers say, well, can you get some blurbs? I, I no, you can look at my past reviews and you can take, yeah, you can take quotes out of reviews because of course you're going to pick nice quotes. You're not going to pick the part where they pulled your, your, you know, your book to pieces, but still it's something they wrote on their own, not because you asked them to. So there has, a, it's a different framework for me. Yeah, I agree. Well, and also because I, I find it very difficult to ask someone to do that. Oh once. yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I was fortunate with, well, with Orrery, I had, you know, uh, review quotes from my nonfiction, which kind of aligned with the subject of Orrery. Mm -hmm. And then I had enough, thankfully, reviews from Orrery that I could use them for this. Yes. So, good, good. But, you know, it's not that easy to get reviewed. I mean, you're one of the few out there that, you know. It, it isn't. Live. Yeah. It's so much harder now. My first book, Somatic, I think there was about uh, nine to 11 reviews of it. And wow. if I get three reviews now, and some of my books haven't been reviewed at all, you yeah, know, not even on, not even on like the awful Amazon or, or Goodreads where they have imbeciles essentially just going, I don't read poetry, but 
this one of these poems was okay. I mean, just something that's just not a review at all. So, you know, but some of them didn't even get that. So you just, <laughs> it's just, yeah, that's why I'm saying these MFA students, they need to, you know, really get into that because wouldn't that be lovely if you had those who are thinking about the art actually reflecting on it in public? Yeah. And no, we, we, I yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I do reviews when I'm asked, like, say, by the Malahad or whatnot. But, um, yeah, I mean, they, they take a lot of time, as you know. They do. And, and uh, I, I like doing them because they, they force me to really uh, pay attention to what I'm reading. Yes. So I come up, you know, sort of having known that book better than if I hadn't done a review, pretty sure. Yes. But, uh, yeah, it takes up a lot of time. So It does. And I mean, I, I will review poetry books for free, but I review nonfiction for pay. But I mean, your pay is $50 to, if you're lucky, $150, which still means you're probably making $5 an hour if you're exactly. lucky. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I do get tremendous satisfaction from participating in that a community of critics and reviewers and feeling like you're part of the foundation for books to emerge because we need our compost for our flowers. We can't just throw them on dry soil. You know, here you go. Oh, nobody wants them. Oh, well, like it's just, it's depressing. Like I, I don't care about the big bucks, but you know, give us some reviews, right? Yeah. I mean, come on. So that leads me right into my final question. What works and doesn't for you in the Canadian poetry world? Well, well, that's, that's a hard one to go into because things have been, you know, pretty fraught. And, yes. And, uh, well, I guess in can lit or whatever you call it in general. I mean, I think, I think probably what works in, is the same thing as what doesn't work. Like, I, I love making connections with mm. other writers yeah. and, you know, feeling that camaraderie. And then what doesn't work is when that camaraderie falls apart because of either a miscommunication mm. or someone uh, takes, you know, a very strong stand against mm. someone else and just says, that's it, I'm never, we're not going to talk this over, we're not going to have any kind of reconciliation, we're just going to cut ourselves into these different camps. Mm. And I just feel like it's such a, such a tragedy. I mean, yes. this, I don't think it's necessary. I don't think just because you don't agree with someone that you can't, it can't be resolved. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not really into the shaming that goes on. You know, I feel like someone who's been shamed, well, maybe they deserved it, but can't we, can't we work it out? I mean, do they have to, you know, yeah. be shamed her? Yeah. yeah, I definitely, I just had a flashback to the 2011 uh, Poetry uh, West Coast Conference. What was it called? Organized by Brad Cran and in Vancouver and when he was the Poet Laureate. And I remember this panel with Russ Thornton and there was, I can't remember who else was on the panel, but there was someone very opposed to Russ. And I just, you know, it was poetics. It was poetics. But like, you know, one was arguing for meaning. Russ, of course, was arguing for meaning. And this other poet was arguing against meaning. And But it was just got very vicious and this nastiness. And it's like, why can't we discuss things without it becoming an ad hominem attack? You know? Right. And why can't we appreciate 
you know, I don't write uh, language poetry, and I yeah. don't write like highly conceptual poetry, but I really appreciate it. And sure. I enjoy reading it. So it's not like, oh, well, I only like this kind of poetry, and this other poetry has no no value. You exactly. Like, like, I don't know why. Yeah, that's that's a very uh, interesting thing too to see. Which camps just decide that this all the other writing is no good? Oh yeah, it's just it's just so strange to me that to just you know you can say well I'm probably going to like more lyric poetry than I like language poetry, but I would never just sweep aside a whole school, a whole movement, a whole you know mode of writing. No, you know, and and I would say your reviews are pretty wide, but varied, like the books that you review. So I mean, that's really important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not to get stuck in one type of, you know, way of addressing literature. Yeah. And I mean, of course, social media, what impact do you think that has had on the whole knee-jerk reaction? Do you think it's gotten worse over the past, you know, 20 years? Well, I would say divisiveness in general has gotten pretty, pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't see the need for that either. But um Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've unfriended a few people on Facebook lately. I've never done that. But it's like their, their, you know, their thoughts are so like, I don't know, like they're so strict and hateful. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't, I don't need to see that. You know, I used no. to say, well, you need to know what the other, all these other people are thinking. Yeah, it's good. Well. But now I'm thinking, well, okay, but maybe not you. No, (laughs) no, because some people just respond toxically, and that's not healthy for anybody. So, you know, I always find it interesting how quickly people jump on bandwagons and castigate harshly minor things, you know, and (laughs) it's quite shocking. But it makes for good podcasts where you can rant about it a little bit, you know. (laughs) So I was wondering if you would like to finish by reading one of the other three poems that you sent me. Uh, On Silence, uh, September, or Love Poem. Um, Maybe, uh, let's see, maybe this September. Okay, here we go. I'll have to read it off of this. I mean, a lot of the poems in this book are uh, concerned about our relationship with the other than human Mm. world. So there's a lot of, and I live in nature most of the years. So I, have, I have more uh, company with other than human animals. Lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, September, thinking of the worker wasp I crashed into this summer. Intent on crumpling flecks of weathered deck inside your mouth, you launched from your planet of ribbon pulp, just as I, interstellar object on a mission to a glass of wine, Crossed your flight path, wallop to you, sting to me, your venom exciting my pain receptors, my cheek swelling like your nest, which kept growing from the inside out. I thought of doing you in, but season's end comes soon enough, amphoras of spit emptying out their hearts. Is that you, dragging your starving husk across the floor? Here, drink this sugared water. Each of us takes that final breath, exhales, we hope, sated. Thank you so much, Donna. Thank you, Catherine, and for all you do. You've been listening to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws. Stay fierce, word musicians.